Thank you for listening to our Love City Church podcast. Visit us online at www.lovecitychurch.ca. We pray that this message encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus. All right. Well, today we're going to uh, continue our series we started last week on uh, heaven and hell. And um, last week I was so brutally sick. And thank the Lord, I'm about 90% there. So, but I decided to sit on the stool uh, just to, uh, just to you know, give your necks a rest. How about that? Because uh, if those of you who don't know, I like to, I'm a, I'll get up here and my legs are like, I'm going to start doing this. That means I'm getting a little excited, you know. But I like to stand up and walk around. But I just also think it's important, just especially during this series, that, that I, I, I take a, a, an approach to the message that really, I really want to make sure that everyone in the room feels as though uh, they are able to hear what God has put on my heart uh, as easily as possible. And so this is my encouragement to you to just uh, give me uh, permission, if you can, for the next uh, little while, for till the time, end of our time together, to really just share with you just uh, biblical truth directly from the Bible. And I'm going to give you a few thoughts prior to, to me doing that. Um, <clears throat> but just give me permission this morning, if, if you can, just to share with you what I, uh, is not an opinion. Uh, this is not an opinion. This is uh, based on Scripture, based on the truth of Scripture. Um, so um, I shared a couple of things last week in this series and, I, and as we started. I want to reshare some of those things just to set a groundwork for those of you who maybe uh, um, weren't here last week. Uh, the first thing I want to I say is that I am not an expert on heaven and hell, and uh, nor do I pretend to be an expert on heaven and hell. But what I have done is I've read a lot of books on it, and I've done a lot of prayer and a lot of questions and Q&A with people who know what they're talking about. But I may not address some of the issues you might have. You might have uh, hard questions like, um, you know, when my grandfather died and he didn't know Jesus, is he, you know, or he, he didn't, it wasn't a parent Christian, is he in heaven or hell? Or, or uh, hey, we had a miscarriage and is my baby in heaven or hell? Or people who are in a country that have never heard the gospel, are they in heaven or hell? Those are really, really great questions and questions that I'm actually willing to sit down with you and have a conversation with you about. I'd love to talk with you. If you have a question, email me, ryan at lovecitychurch.ca, and I will do my best to do the research, or I'll get you going on the journey, because ultimately I want you to figure it out for yourself. You can also go to lovecitychurch.ca, and I'm not selling anything for Andrew Ling if he's worried, and uh, Jan Stein. I'm not selling anything, guys. Uh, but uh, lovecitychurch.ca forward slash heaven and hell. There's about six or seven books that I would encourage you to pick up if you're a reader. Or you can get them on audiobook if you'd like as well. But just to give you some context for kind of where I'm gathering a lot of my perspectives. So um, the, the second thought here today in, uh, is that this, uh, the, there will be things that I'm going to say that you're not going to like. Uh, but I, but I'm, I'm committed to sharing the truth of Scripture and not my opinions. I will not take a position on when Christ is going to return, whether it's before or after or during or next year or it happened 1914 or it's going to happen in 2027. I'm not going to take any kind of positions like that because I don't think any of us know anyways. Uh, I'm also not using this topic as a fear-mongering opportunity to convert you to Christianity. Uh, all I'm doing is I'm simply presenting the truth of Scripture and you can decide for yourself what you believe uh, is the truth and what you believe would be, uh, would be right or wrong, but I want you to know that everything that I'm sharing is directly from the Bible. Uh, and I'm not sharing opinions, I'm sharing perspectives uh, that are, are taught uh, from Scripture. 
And so I want to read this to you. Peter Gill uh, wrote a book, Galley wrote a book called God Wins in rebuttal to a book written by Rob Bell, who wrote Love Wins. And the premise of Love Wins is that everyone will go to heaven and that hell is a non-existent place. And so he wrote this book in, in, in a, in a, as a counter thought to that book. And he said this, such teaching makes us feel uncomfortable. Some Christians are so unsure of their standing with God uh, that the mere thought of judgment frightens them. Others are not so much concerned about themselves as for their loved ones who have uh, never, never put um, their f trust in Christ. And how will they avoid hell? And still others think hell and judgment reflect badly on God and want to protect his reputation. So it's understandable that we are tempted to soften the Bible's teaching on hell and judgment. I get it. Uh, uh, as we'll talk about in a minute, I, I don't actually like the idea of hell. I don't like the idea of, of what we're going to talk about today. I don't like it. I wish we could remove it. I wish we could take it out. But I, I have three positions, three things that I will stand on, the positions I will stand on, and, and we will share those positions, and then I'm going to kind of step back from them. But I want you to know this is the underlying presupposition based on uh, the study in Scripture. Uh, the three positions are this. Firstly, that God does not send people to hell. God does not send people to hell. Uh, in our life, we have a life's uh, decisions to make, and the eternal decisions on this planet. Next week, we're going to talk about what happens in the new heaven and the new earth. What does life look like after this whole thing wraps up and the buzzer goes off and it's the fourth quarter's over and we're into eternity? What does that look like? We'll talk about that next week, but we have to understand that our decisions on this earth uh, have an eternal trajectory, and when we die, we will either go to heaven or we will go to hell. God does not send us to hell, uh, and, and God does not send us there. It's a decision that we made in our lives to either accept God or to reject God. The second position is this. Our choices on this earth will impact our future eternity, which I've just mentioned. And lastly, both believers and unbelievers will be judged when they die and when Christ returns, which we'll talk a little bit more about today, but it gives you a little more context to understand the brevity of that kind of big statement. So, what happens, uh, what happens when I die? That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to give you, literally, I'm going to try to walk you through what happens when you die. You go outside today, you get hit by a bus, you die, what happens next? Well, firstly, what happens is, is that we, uh, we instantly walk into eternity. It's like a line, imagine a line on the ground, or as this picture shows, you literally go from this physical earth, and you step into eternity, where you are n n now fully present, uh, in the presence of God, fully present in eternity, fully present in the afterlife. And so you literally, it's not this, um, uh, I've read all these uh, near-death experiences, which I personally, uh, this is an opinion, don't believe many of those people went to heaven or hell. I don't believe because scripture teaches very clearly uh, 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 those who have, but outside of scripture, people having near-death experiences is, I don't believe personally, a scriptural foundation. Uh, so I read all these experiences and all these people say that there's this long tunnel and it takes a while or blackness or no the moment you die you step into eternity and you are now living in this eternal state and this is the scripture Luke 23 says one of the criminals hanging alongside cursed him and some Messiah this is Jesus on the on the cross with two criminals who were being crucified next to him and one of the criminals hanging alongside cursed Jesus and some some Messiah you are save yourself save us 
but the other one made him shut up. Have you no fear of God? You're getting the same as, as him. We deserve this, but not him. He did nothing to deserve this. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. This guy's being exec executed for being a criminal. He was most likely just like a, a, a actually a, like a thief, <laughs> a thief being crucified for being a thief next to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? So there was a moment where he put his faith in Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to the Father except through him. And at that moment, this, this man, he didn't make a confession of faith, he didn't raise his hand in church, in his heart, there was a belief, and it says in the scripture that Jesus said to this man, don't worry, I, uh, I will. Today, today, you will join me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow, not in 10 years, not uh, once you're through purgatory, not when Christ returns, like right now, when you die on this cross, you will immediately enter into the eternal state of the afterlife right now. And what I talked about last week was this idea of, that we look in a, in a mirror, a puzzling mirror, that, that the life is like our lives today are like looking through this hazy glass where life just feels like it doesn't quite make sense. It, it doesn't quite uh, understand uh, certain things that even though I get this career and I get married or I have kids or I get to this certain echelon of success in my life, even though I'm even a Christian and, and I, I love God and I love my wife and I love my kids and I love this church and I love it. I have to tell you, there's still something inside of me that is just so dissatisfied and something inside of me that is so wanting. And yes, do I read my Bible and yes, do I pray and yes, do I do these really good things? Yes, and I'm filled and he eternally will fill me. But the reality is that there's eternity has been written on every human heart and there's something on the inside of me that no matter how good my relationships are and how much money I make and how far I go in my life, it will always feel as though it just doesn't satisfy. And that's because eternity has been written on my heart and there is something inside of me that so badly longs for my heavenly home, so badly Badly longs for the original place in which God intended for us to dwell with him. And so when we go from this hazy, shadowy, dark, dim, foggy environment of earth where things don't quite make sense, when you step into eternity, everything becomes clear. Everything begins to make sense. You look back at your life and you say, oh, 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 I get it now. I understand. That makes sense. I understand why this happened. Everything begins to bring clear to your mind and there is clarity in your life. When you die, you step into the afterlife, and it says in Scripture very clearly that after we die, we will then face a judgment of our faith. Now, next week we're going to talk about there's a second judgment, and this judgment is where every believer, and I'll use these terms for those of you in the room maybe who aren't uh, um, maybe around church very often, or maybe you're not a Christian today. There's a lot of different folks here who are Christians, not Christians. Maybe you're a Muslim today. Maybe you're an atheist. Maybe you're far from God, and that's, we're so happy you're here. And I love you, and I'm glad you're here today. Um, so I'll use the phrases believer, meaning someone who believes in Jesus, and an unbeliever, somebody who maybe doesn't believe in Jesus. And so when, when next week we'll talk about how we'll stand before Jesus, and believer and unbeliever will be judged for their deeds on this planet, will be judged for the works 
works that they've done. But this heaven that we, when you die, you will be judged by your faith in Jesus Christ. So those who have made a confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord and they believe he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and there is no other way to reach the Father in heaven. When those individuals, the believers in faith, will be judged based on your faith, not based on your works. We will face judgment. In reading these books and articles on these near-death experiences, I uh, actually, I'm sorry, in Hebrews, uh, to prove that point in Scripture, Hebrews 9.27, and just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so I was reading this near-death experience, and it, uh, this person wrote this. We seem to be moving inexorably from a society where organized religion dominates issues of morality and mortality, but now to the secular promised land of reason. Rather, we are orienting, uh, or orienting ourselves to a more personal spirituality. At once vague and autonomous, ordinary sinners increasingly don't believe that they deserve judgment, let alone hell. Theists and atheists alike dispute any earthly authority's right to judge, and both feel near-death experiences give them reason to hope for something beyond the grave. And many believers confidently expect that God isn't, judgmental either and i hate that phrase judgmental or that god does not judge us when we die and the reality is scripture says everybody dies once and then you face judgment the scripture teaches it you go do biblegateway.com type in the word judgment and you'll see how many times that jesus himself the author and the finisher god himself taught on the realities of judgment and taught that when you die you will stand before Jesus Christ. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you've confessed your faith to him, you will spend an eternity in heaven. And if you've not confessed your faith, and I'm just sharing what the scripture would teach, it would teach that you would then be taken to what we'll talk about today called hell. And so we'll talk about that reality, but there is a judgment when we stand before Jesus. We are judged based on our faith. But I have really good news for you today that this, this faith gift, this faith access to heaven, it's free. It's not based on anything you've done. She said, Ryan, I'm here today and I've never been to church or I've never given my money or I've never, uh, you know, been a, a religious person or I've never done good things or I'm a bad person or maybe I'm a really good person, but I've never, ever, ever uh, uh, been in a place where, where I, I feel like I could either accept God's grace or like I've done all these good things and I've, I, I've done all these bad things and all these different reasons why you think you might just be disqualified from heaven, but you got to know it's free. He did it for you. He died for you. It's free. All you have to do is accept it. And scripture teaches that in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Titus 3 in the message paraphrase. It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, <laughs> dupes of sin, ordered every which way by our glands, <laughs> going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God, our kind and loving Savior God, stepped in, he saved us from all that. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath, and we came out of it a new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously, and God's gift has restored our relationship with him and given us back our lives, and there's, no more, life to, there's more life to come and eternity of life. You can't count on this. So we're thankful that whether you're here today and you don't know Jesus or you do know Jesus, that you have the opportunity. It's free. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe in your heart. That's what the Bible says. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible says, and you will be saved. 
So today, if you're here and you say, man, I don't know what to do. What do I have to do? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to give my money? Do I have to give like 50% of my finances? Do I have to like give to a charity? No, you just believe in your heart and you're saved. And one day when you're judged, you will stand before the Lord and he'll say, well, good, my good and faithful servant, come with me into heaven. You're, you're my son, you're my daughter, and they'll welcome you into the realities of heaven. When you and I die, we will uh, be judged for our faith. So let's talk about what happens next. Then we experience the realities of heaven. Now, I want you to understand something about heaven and hell. Heaven and hell, the realities of heaven, heaven and hell are literal places. They're not spirit places. They are literal places. Randy Alcorn says this, and I'm going to reference Randy Alcorn a lot today in his book, Heaven. In the intermediate heaven and hell, which is the hell we will go, or heaven and hell we will go to uh, until Christ comes back uh, for his church and to restore everything back to its original order, which we'll talk about next week. In the intermediate heaven and hell, we will await the time until Jesus returns to restore the new heavens and the new earth. Until that day comes, scripture teaches that those who die will go to a real place either the present heaven or the present hell. As conscious humans, be, human beings with memory of their lives and relationships on earth, and those in hell will live in misery, hopelessness, and apparent isolation, while those in heaven will live in comfort, joy, and a rich relationship with God and others. So we are very resistant to the idea of heaven and hell. We are also very resistant to the idea of, um, of there being a literal place of hell. And the reason this has happened in many churches today, I hear a lot of pastors, which is crazy when I talk about heaven and hell. Many pastors who are pastoring churches today believe that heaven is this spirit place where we go around on clouds and that hell probably is just a state of mind. But the reality is this. What happened was is that back in the day, when Plato was on the earth, Plato uh, believed that all matter and he believed that all of, uh, of earth and physical form was evil and all spirit was essentially good. And so therefore, uh, to be in your body, to experience this earth, to experience the joys of this planet, what happened was is that he believed that those things were bad. And so what the church did was uh, Origen uh, and, uh, and, and others began to teach uh, this in the Christian church. And so they began to reject the idea that heaven and hell were a literal physical place that you went. They began to think it was this state of mind, this out-of-body subconscious experience that we have. But in reality, that is not taught in Scripture. Most Christian churches will reject the idea of a literal hell when Jesus himself teaches that it's literal. And so we see the realities of hell. We're going to talk about the realities of hell for a minute. And Jesus was the expert. Out of three and a half years, he preached 26 different messages on heaven and hell, specifically on hell, 26 times. Jesus is the foremost expert. He, he, he was the creator, but also he's God. He was the foremost expert in the realities of hell, and he taught it was a literal place. He taught it was a literal reality. A 2010 Canadian poll found that more than half of us think there is a heaven, while fewer than a third acknowledge there is a hell. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I have met no people who fully disbelieved in hell and also had a living and life-giving belief in heaven. Randy Alcorn said this. The belief in hell sucks. <laughs> I don't want to believe in it. But if, I makes what the, but, it, but if I make what I want or what others want, the basis for my beliefs then, I am a follower of myself and my culture and not a follower of Christ. Novelist Dorothy Sayers said this, there seems to be a kind of conspiracy to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. 
The doctrine of hell is not a medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin, and we cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. Last one here, C.S. Lewis said this in a wonderful book you should read called The Problem of Pain. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of Scripture, and specifically of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. So what happens when I die? When I go to hell, hell is a place, the Hebrew Greek word, the Hebrew word is Hades, or Sheol, the Greek word is Hades, and those phrases means the place of the dead, the place where there's departed souls. Randy Alcorn again mentions this in his book uh, called Heaven. He says that hell will be a place of conscious punishment for sins with no hope of relief. And that is why Dante, who wrote the Divine Comedy, who adopted many of his philosophies about hell from Islam, and he brought those over, and the church, the Christian church, began to adopt the idea of heaven, or I'm sorry, for hell, from Dante, who is not a Christian, who wrote the Divine Comedy. And in the Inferno, this was the doorpost, the, 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 door, the, the, the wording that he put above the door of hell, abandon every hope, you who enter. He says this as well. Heaven is not our default destination. No one goes there automatically. Or heaven, I'm sorry. Unless our sin problem is resolved, the only place we will go is our true default destination, hell. Hell will be inhabited by people who haven't received God's gift of redemption in Christ. And Jesus teaches here that in hell, the wicked suffer terribly, are fully conscious, retain their desires and memories and reasoning and long for relief and cannot be comforted and cannot leave their torment and are left to bereft, bereft of hope. And so we see that hell is a challenging place. Now Luke 16 um, takes us, Jesus teaches this verse in Luke 16. And many people believe that this is just like a, like a metaphor for heaven and hell. But I believe that, that Jesus gives us enough detail to give us a bit of an understanding of what hell might be like, or heaven might be like. He, we'll read the story. It's a little bit of a longer verse, but let me read the story. And then I just want to point out a very few, so few details to help you wrap your brain around some of the, 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 the realities and the details of heaven and hell. It's in Luke 16. It says this, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was in torment, this is Jesus talking, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's a comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Well, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father, Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and they do not listen to the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from 
the dead. This is what we see in this verse. Lazarus was with people. The rich man was alone. There was no one with him. We see in this verse that the rich man, he reasoned. He communicated. He, uh, Abraham maintained, and, and Lazarus maintained their distinctive identities from earth. There, the, the, there was direct continuity from their life on earth to the life in the, in the afterlife. The rich men and Lazarus were depicted with physical form. He said, I'm thirsty. Can you put a water on my tongue? The other Lazarus said, can you put my finger in the water? There was physical attributes to these people. Now, Jesus used these details for a reason. And in verse 23, he says this, in Hades, where he was in torment. So many times we think about this idea of torment, and again, we got this from the divine comedy. We have this idea in our mind, which is a lie. I'm going to say it first. This is a myth. This is not true. We would like to believe that when, we, uh, when someone goes to hell, that Satan and his demons are down there prodding them, poking them, mocking them, and relentlessly uh, trying to jeer them and taking great joy in the idea that they are in hell. When in reality, you have to understand something. Satan and his demons have no authority. God has all the authority. And so when we think about hell, we often think about the idea that you're being beat up all the time and that you're being lynched and you're being, uh, uh, that you're being uh, like physically tormented. When you look at uh, military warfare back in the day in the States when they, would, uh, they publicly did torturing, uh, they, would, they would always talk about, I, read a doc, I watched this documentary on torture, and they said that the goal of torture was not necessarily to harm their body. The goal of torture was to get their mind. The goal of the torture wasn't just to cut their fingers off. The goal of doing that torture to their bodies was to break their will, to get to their mind, to get to their identity, to get the information out of them. And so this torture, this torment that we experience in hell is a, yes, a physical torture, meaning that we have incurable diseases. There's incurable diseases that will never Ever. That's what the word torment means, a debilitating disease. It's a debilitating disease that we will never recover from. There's never enough medication. There's never enough help. There's never enough ointment. There's never enough, you're always constantly in a place of debilitating disease in your body. There is physical torment. There's no rest. You're always tired. My wife and I do road trips every year for some weird reason. And last couple years ago, we drove for 72 hours. Oh, my Lord. And I was really tired during this trip. And I remember going in, stopping to get gas. And I was exhausted after driving for 30 hours. And I walked into this corner store. And all I wanted was a cup of coffee, a bag of candy, and for no one to speak to me. And I walked in there, and the lady jumped in front of me, and she cut me in line. And I'm just thinking, okay, this lady, oh, I'm a Christian. It's okay. I'm going to love her, but I don't love her. So I'm, whatever. I'm going to abandon it. Leave that at the door. I don't love you today. I'm going to leave my Christianity at the door. Just kidding. I didn't do that. I kind of did. She came in front of me and she, you know, took her time and then she dropped her money and then she had questions and she did stuff. And by the end of it, I hated this woman. I'm just being real. I, I just couldn't stand being around this woman who would not get out of my way. I just wanted my coffee. And I want to get back in the car and I want to drive. When you are so tired and so lacking with rest, isn't people the last thing you want to be around? And in hell, the idea isn't that you are alone. You are lonely. 
The idea isn't that you're alone. The idea is that you cannot stand other people. And so there's this constant lack of rest. You are constantly hungry. Some of you at the end of church, I know one guy who just can't wait. He got to go get sushi every week because he just can't wait. <laughs> constantly hungry. And it's never satisfied. Constantly thirsty. Never satisfied. The mental, uh, the mental uh, weight on your mind when you're in hell, the Bible says there is weeping and gnashing of cheap teeth. That word weeping would speak to the grief and regret and disappointment and the heaviness of the realities of the mistakes and the sin and this feeling of, it's like the grief of a losing a loved one. And the grinding of your teeth comes from when Stephen was stoned in the scripture and the people were so angry that Stephen was talking about God that they ground their niche and they snarled and they took rocks and they threw it at Stephen. They're so angry, constantly upset in a state of overwhelming, furious state where you're angry and you run your teeth together because you're so angry at heaven and the people in heaven and the God in heaven. You're so overwhelmingly angry. I'm going to take a little moment right here. I feel like sometimes that's some people in the room right now. You're living in this place of hell and the only one that can bring you reprieve is Jesus Christ. The bitterness and the anger and the fear and the grief and the weight of all these things. You don't have to wait to get to heaven. You can experience it. It also talks about the idea of this gnashing of teeth is very interesting. The word gnashing here, it means to eat greedily with a noise as a wild beast. You ever seen an animal fight over food? Just imagine people finding a piece of food and they're eating this food and they're greedy looking, ah, get away from me. They're eagerly, get away from me in this food because you just want to try to satisfy your hunger. There's this deep, ferocious, selfish nature the scripture also teaches that you're put into an utter darkness. Have you ever had a campfire, a big bonfire? And when you're at the bonfire and you're around it, everything is seen clearly. But have you ever looked behind you and seen the deep, darkest depths of darkness that are behind the fire? And then you have to go pee, and so you go out into the darkness, and you're standing out in the darkness, and you get out there, and it is really dark. And it's like pitch black. And you turn around, and you can see the fire, and you can see the joy, and you can see the marshmallows, and you can see the guitar and the kumbaya, and you can see the camaraderie, and you can see the community, and you can see the guy burning himself with the flame, and you can see the kids. All, you can see all the joy, but you're in utter, complete darkness where it's cold, and you're constantly looking over your shoulder because you're hearing stuff behind you, but you hate everyone around you, and you're greedily angry. Really, what hell is, is hell is worship of yourself. What happens is, is that God's presence is in hell. Did you know that? That's what the Bible teaches. The scripture teaches that. So the, the issue isn't that God's presence isn't there. The issue is, is that you want to get as far away from it as you can. Because when God's presence comes in the, in the presence of a holy God, when we are left to our sin, even though we feel this grief and this disdain and this lack of identity and this feeling of hopelessness, it's never satisfied. In fact, in hell, you are left to your desires. You like to have sex? Have sex. 
You like to get just, you know, crazy drunk, get crazy drunk. You like to get high, get high. You like to, you like to go out and, you know, go build all these mashup. But when you build that in your heart's desire, you can have. But when you build that house, you go to that place and you do that thing. How many of you have ever been in a situation in your life where you've sinned? Or you've seen something you shouldn't have? You've made a decision you shouldn't have? You treated your wife a certain way? How do you feel afterwards? This sense of disgusting shame. This deep guilt. This overwhelming sense that I am not good enough. And that never goes away. And every time you look up to heaven and you see the bonfire of God's presence, you feel the shame and the guilt from your sin because it is never satisfied. Look what Peter Kreft said in his book. Great Western thinkers like Solomon, or whoever wrote Ecclesiastes, Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, Aquinas, Pascal, Kierkegaard, See the same thing and structure their philosophy around the search for our ultimate end, the satisfaction of our deepest desire. They pass in review essentially the same three lesser answers as Hinduism does and conclude, Thou hast made us for thyself, and therefore our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. Augustine wrote that, saying that I'm constantly restless and I will never find satisfaction until I find my rest in God. And look what he said. The great Augustine, who penned this, that sentence, one of the most profound in all human writing, also proposed the following little thought experiment to show you, his reader, that your deepest desire is indeed the desire for God. Imagine God appeared to you and said, I'll make a deal with you. If you, if you wish, I'll give you anything and everything you ask, pleasure, power, honor, wealth, freedom, even peace of mind and a good conscience. Nothing will be sin. Nothing will be forbidden. Nothing will be impossible for you. You will never be bored and you will never die. Only you shall never see my face. Being in a place where you are left to your own demise, your own sin, your own wants, your own desires, your own needs, you have whatever you want, but the presence of an almighty, loving, unconditionally redeeming God is not there for you. This is hell. Being in a state where I cannot experience. And it's not a matter of God not giving it to us. In hell, we, are, we have the incapacity in our own fallen nature to receive the realities of God. It's not that God doesn't offer it to us. Think about this for a minute. It's not that God is not willing to bring everyone into heaven with him. It's that in a state of hell, we are so opposed to the idea of God. We are so opposed to the nature and the character and the holiness and the righteousness of a loving God, that we will never accept that reality and so we choose to stay in our personal place of hell. Hell is about serving your sovereign self. Psalms 139, 7 and 8 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're still there. God's presence is there. Hell will be an agonizing dull, agonizingly small, agonizingly insignificant, agonizingly without company, agonizingly without purpose, agonizingly without accomplishment, 
It will not have its, it'll not have its own stories. It will be a footnote in history, a crack in the pavement of heaven. It will be utter inactivity, utter insignificance, continuously thirsty, continuously hungry, ultimate loneliness, ultimate loss of identity, continuous guilt and shame, an eternal non-life of regret, slowly diminishing your personhood, chipping away at who you, who you thought you were while you slowly lose yourself. It's a physical, literal place. When you die, if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'll be ushered into a place of eternal hell, and forever you will be left to yourself. You'll be completely isolated and alone by choice. Because you've been left to your sovereign self. You've been left to serve you. Are you ready for heaven? Good. That's why I put that first. Now, some preachers would have put it last and said, come to God! I'm going to reverse it and go to heaven and say, let's go to heaven. Because heaven is, once you hear about heaven, it's far greater. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the, uh, the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. And they shouted to the Lord and said, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? And then they were each given a white robe and told, Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, that's a heavy scripture. But the reason I read that scripture is because we see a lot about heaven in this verse. So I'm just going to shotgun some ideas at you to help you understand as we build a little bit of a case for heaven how the physical reality of heaven in my, in my study and what I believe scripture teaches is very similar to this earth. So we think that it's this out-of-body experience when in reality when you step across the line of heaven you're stepping into a physical, natural, literal hell or a little heaven, a place where you live life, have relationship and are engaging in a relationship with God just like here. Look what it says in Scripture. I just read to you, people in heaven could talk with God. People in heaven converse with God audibly, face to face. They have audience to, have, to God. People in heaven are free to ask questions, articulate their concerns, inquire about things they don't know. God answered them, talked with them, and communicated with them. People in heaven are fully aware of God's attributes. They said He's sovereign. He's true. He's holy. People in heaven are emotional. They're rational. They're communicative. They're passionate beings. They want God to intervene on earth and on their behalf, they're seeking just, they're actually impatient for justice to happen on the earth. People in heaven don't know everything and they'll have to discover it. We won't know all things. This idea that you're going to get in and you're going to be smarter than Albert Einstein. No, I think that you get into heaven and we, have a, we see with clarity, but there's so much to understand and so much to learn and so much to process the, the greatest adventure of earth is going on a journey where you don't know where you're going. Where you go on a hike and you don't know what you're going to end up on and you come to this, like the first time we did that little hike in Canmore that's small to me, or it's big to us, but small to John. We it was like, well, the, what's the green part lake? You go up behind the, you know, the mountains there and we walked up there and I had never seen it before and I walked in this turquoise water and I was like, whoa, this is incredible. I never knew this was here, but John knew it was there, but I didn't know it was there. Just like heaven on this great adventure to figure things out that we never knew before. People in heaven are revered for what they did on earth. They were remembered for what they did. People in heaven have enhanced memories of their time on earth. 
Memory is the basic element of personality. If we are truly ourselves in heaven, there must be continuity of memory from heaven to earth. So when you get to heaven, it's not like you're blacked out on earth. You remember everything about your life in heaven. And I believe the good and the bad, the sin and the non-sin, and that's the perspective reality, that when we look at earth from heaven, we have a perspective shift. We see it from redemption. We don't see it from sin. People in heaven are fully conscious. They're aware of each other. People in heaven are fully aware of what is happening on earth. People in heaven have a deep concern for justice. They know that those who have killed them have not been judged. People in heaven are interceding and praying. People in heaven are distinct individuals because each of them have been given a robe. People in heaven didn't understand it all, uh, didn't understand it all, and they required patience. Look at this scripture in, or, I'm sorry, Randy Alcorn says this, and my thing's wigging out there, so you're going to have to help me, but the unfolding drama of redemption Awaiting Christ's return is currently happening on earth. Earth is the center court. Earth is the center stage. Awaiting the consummation of Christ's return and the establishment of his kingdom. This seems a compelling reason to believe that the current inhabitants of heaven will be able to observe what's happening on earth. If the sovereign God's attention is on earth, why wouldn't the attention of his heavenly subjects be focused there as well? Therefore, can we be sad or grieve in heaven? Happiness in heaven is not based on ignorance, but on perspective. Those who live in the presence of God find great joy in worshiping God, living as righteous beings in rich fellowship in a sinless environment. Hebrews 9, 11 and 24 says this, So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not a part of this created world. So the idea that we look up in heaven, we see our earth, we see civilization, we see societies, we see culture, we see buildings, we see cars, we see technology, we see all the things that we see in our, our world, and we look is less organized and less civilized and less structured and less thought through than our earth. That is a backwards thought. We have to actually look at earth from heaven's perspective that earth was simply a copy of what already exists in heaven. And so we think the idea that there are civilization and there's community and there's, there's cities and there's infrastructure and there's jobs and there's transportation and what we see on this planet is not a godless idea. God gave people the wisdom to do what they did. And so why wouldn't we expect to see that in heaven? Look what C.S. Lewis said, the hills and the valleys of heaven will be to those you now experience not as a copy to an original, nor as a substitute to the genuine article, but as the flower to the root, or the diamond to the coal. Look at this. Often our thinking is backwards. Why do we imagine that God patterns his holy city after an earthly city as if heaven knows nothing of community and culture and is to get the ideas from us? Isn't it more likely that earthly realities, including cities, are derived from heavenly counterparts? We tend to start with earth and reason up toward heaven, when instead we should start with heaven and reason downward toward earth. It isn't merely an accommodation to our earthly familial structure, for instance, that God calls himself a father and us children. On the contrary, he created father-child relationships to display his relationship with us, just as he created human marriage to reveal the love relationship be between Christ and his bride. Look at this. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Safely Home, and it's this young boy who's finally come into heaven. And look what he says to the king. He says, compared to what he now beheld, the world he'd come from was a land of shadows, colorless, two-dimensional, and this place was fresh and captivating. 
resonating with color and beauty and he could not only see it and hear it, but feel and smell and taste it. And every hillside and every mountain and every waterfall and every frolicking animal in the field seemed to beckon him to come join them, to come from the outside and plunge into the inside. This whole world had the feel of a cool water on a blistering August afternoon. The light beckoned him to dive in with abandon, to come join the great adventure. I know what this is. This is the substance that, that casts all those shadows in the other world. The circles there are copies of the spheres here. The squares there are the copies of the cubes here. The triangles there are the copies of the pyramids here. Earth was a flat land. That is, well, the inside is bigger than the outside, isn't it? How many dimensions are there? And the king said to him, well, far more than you've seen yet. And this is how that boy responds. This is the place that defines and gives meaning to all places. I've never imagined that it would be like this. Look what Jesus says again. He says, today you'll join me in where? Paradise. Revelation says this, to everyone who is the victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. What's your paradise? Uh, some of you, I'm looking at some of you like, I know what my paradise is. Boom, that's it. Maybe for you a paradise is mountains. Maybe your paradise is Disney World. <laughs> Hello. Where paradise is used to describe a walled, beautifully manicured walled garden. Speaking specifically to uh, Cyrus's garden in Persia, it was this beautifully manicured garden that wasn't overgrown, but it was well manicured, and that garden had purpose, and it, it was left to the creative gardener, the person who ran that garden. It was up to them to creatively do whatever they wanted and build whatever they wanted in that place. This garden of God, this beautiful place of Eden, this beautiful place that we discover, this paradise. I mean, I bet if I told you to close your eyes right now and think, okay, let's think about paradise. For me, I would love to be sitting on the beach of the Caribbean, laying down with the sun beating on my face and the water coming up on my feet. This breeze is going by. It's not too hot beautiful. I got a wonderful drink and a big plate of food. I'm hanging out with my wife. My kids are running around. My friends are there. My mom and dad are there. My brother. We're all just sitting there just enjoying the presence of an almighty God where I fully know myself. I'm fully satisfied. I no longer have to chase after this endeavors. I never have to feel the shame and the guilt of my sinfulness. But I just get to be 100% Brian. I said, hey guys, I gotta go to work. I'm starting this new project that I am so excited about. I'll see you later. This requires me to go find more peaches just like this. And I can't wait. And while I'm doing it, Jesus, I love you, Lord. You're such a good God. Thank you as I'm discovering going deeper and farther and deeper and farther. And every time I walk around another hill, I realize, oh my gosh, the expanse of this is bigger than where I came from. It's endless. It's constant. It's nonstop where I am completely and continuously in a place of pure bliss as I experience the goodness of my loving Savior. Let me give you an analogy as we end our time here this morning, let's just say that you lived in a homeless shelter like this. And 
you found out that you inherited an incredibly beautiful home in Santa Barbara, California, right on the beautiful ocean. And you found out that you, were, you inherited this incredible, beautiful home free of charge. And not only that, but you have like the perfect job that is suited exactly for you. And not only that, but you found out that all of your family has decided that they also want to move to Santa Barbara and they were also given these beautiful, incredible homes and jobs that they love and they get to be in good relationship and drink good, eat, drink good drinks and have good food and you find out that this reality, this, this, this place that you're going to go to is absolutely free of charge. It's yours to have and you'll be fully fulfilled. You'll have a job you love. You'll have relationships where there's never problems. You have a perfect relationship with your Savior. And it's just so gorgeous. Maybe for you, it's not that house. Maybe it's this one. Hello. Maybe it's you in the mountains. Or maybe it's a little shack on the side of a hill. But you find out that you get to have this house. And you get to live in this place of complete and utter beauty. But before you get there, you have to have a stopover, a layover. And this layover happened to be in this beautiful part of Denver, Colorado. When you get there to Denver, Colorado, some of your friends and family are going to meet you there. And when you get there, you have a week to explore the beautiful mountains and the beautiful parts of this region of the world. And you've got all these plans to, to tour and to go around with your friends and your family who are all there. And you get to experience this incredible reality, this week of compare, just everything's paid for, everything's toured all the food is free amazing food amazing wine amazing friends it's just like yeah that is incredible but when someone asks you hey where are you going on this trip where's this new home of yours oh it's in santa barbara california you're you're gonna tell people that's my that's where i'm headed i'm headed to santa barbara california i'm gonna have a new home it's gonna be a new place it's gonna be incredible but before i get there i get to go on a all expense paid week vacation to denver colorado before i get there that Denver, Colorado location is the heaven you'll experience before Christ, which we'll talk about next week, restores all things back to its original glory. So the new heaven and the new earth is that Santa Barbara home that you to experience. But until then, you get an all-expenses-paid opportunity to go to Denver, Colorado, or whatever destination this layover is at. And when you're telling people, you say, well, actually, my ultimate home is Santa Barbara, California. But I get the opportunity until then to spend time in this incredible location, and I get to go to that place. That's called the intermediate heaven. And when you die, there's a place where we won't be forever. We'll stay there until Christ comes back and restores this earth. In fact, the better analogy would be that you go to Santa Barbara, California. That's our intermediate heaven. And then when you're done, when Christ comes back, you get to come back to Calgary and it's completely restored and remodeled and renewed and it's a perfect utopia of joy and you get to come back to this place where you lived before. You get to experience the realities of heaven and being with God and being in His presence and being with him. But I want to just give you one last thought before I let you go this morning. And thank you for uh, your time today. My last description of heaven and hell is this. Now, I many of you have heard my story. And I don't want to go into it all, but there's a time in our marriage, and I'll just overview here, where I sat on a brown couch. I mentioned before, my wife and I sat knee to knee. And I shared some things about my life that I was deep in sin. My wife had biblical permission to divorce me at that moment. 
So here I am, and this is your life. You're sitting knee to knee across from someone who loves you. And as you're in this place of deep despair where you feel like you are lost and you're broken and you've got nowhere to turn and not, nowhere to go and you just, need, you just need something to happen and you feel the deep regret of your shame and your sin and the guilt in your life and you're knee to knee with God. Hell is when we choose not to accept the forgiveness and love that Jesus is offering us. That feeling of continual state of shame and guilt and oppression and sadness and fear and what's going to happen next and the overwhelming sense of guilt that I feel, hell, is that never goes away. It is constantly gnawing at the inside of your brain that you are not good enough. Never will be. Heaven is like sitting across from Jesus. And they look you in the eyes, just like my wife did. And she says, Ryan, I forgive you. I love you. I'm here to be with you. I forgive you. And at that moment, I experienced heaven on earth. I will forever understand what the great love and unconditional mercy of Jesus Christ feels like because of my loving wife. Experience just a small taste and glimpse. Every good thing you experience in your life, if you're a Christian today, a follower of God, every bad experience you have, every situation you see around you, that's the closest you're ever going to get to hell. But for those of us who have not accepted Christ and the good things that happen in your life and all these wonderful things, that's the closest you're ever going to get to heaven. And I want to give you an opportunity today to turn your life to the Lord. Because I believe today our choices determine the trajectory and the outcome of our life where we will cross into eternity and we will stand before the Lord and He will judge us based upon our faith in Him and you will then be able to spend an eternity in pure bliss, an incredible environment with God in heaven, in the present heaven, and the new heaven, and in the new earth, or you will spend an eternity in the torments of hell, isolated, alone, overwhelmed by your guilt and your shame and your sin. And I this morning wept during this service not because I was feeling this for me but because I felt the heart of God for you and I'm not just talking to those in the room today that don't know Jesus that aren't Christians I'm talking to the Christians in the room who don't know Jesus I'm talking to the Christians in the room who've been so religious in their walk with God and today Jesus is here saying all I want to do is give you a free gift of salvation but you don't have to do anything you just have to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ came and died on a cross and he was buried and he rose on the third day and he ascended up to sit at the right hand of the Father and welcoming people into his kingdom. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, not a week from now. Today is the day of salvation. So would you close your eyes here this morning and we do this every week. I believe there's some people in the room who are Christians who are going to get saved today. People in the room who've been living a religious life and that's okay but today say I just really need to give my life to the Lord and maybe you're here today and you say Ryan I don't know God and I'm an atheist or I'm far from God or I've fallen away I want you to know today the message to you is grace and redemption and love and forgiveness and he wants to forgive you and he forgives and he redeems and he makes you new just in the moment in the blink of an eye God comes and transforms your life 
So as we end today with every eye closed, if you're here today and you say, Ryan, you know, I want to give my life to Jesus today. I want to spend an eternity in heaven. If that's you today, all I want you to do, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. With every eye closed, just raise your hand real quick. Put it up in the air so I can see you. So I know who I'm praying for today. Come on, just real quick. Put it up in the air. Every eye closed, just for respect for other people. Come on, real quick. You're in the room. Say, Ryan, I'm not a Christian, and I'd like to become a Christian, or I'd like to know Jesus. Maybe in the room you say, Ryan, I am one, but I don't think I am one, and I'd like to give my life to God today. It's okay. Put your hand in the air real quick, and then put it right down. One more time. And count of three. One, two, three. Anybody else? Come on, let's pray with me today. Would you just close your eyes and pray with me today? Father, just repeat after me if you would today. Just say this prayer out loud. Father, I come to you today. I confess that you're God and I need you in my life. I want to spend an eternity with you. Come on, church, say it out loud. I'm here today to confess my need for you. I want to live the rest of my life for you, Lord. I give my heart to you. I give my mind to you. And I give my life to you mighty name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to our Love City Church podcast. Visit us online at www.lovecitychurch.ca. We pray that this message encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus.